Aragon, Chapter 14 court was fixed for the 21st of June at Blackfriars. Although the Queen had objected to the court, saying that the case should be tried in Rome, she was due to appear. The two cardinals, the bishops and the King, would all be listening to what she said and trying to find ways to undermine her. That morning she dressed as every inch a Queen. First a fine silk shift with seed pearls at the neck and wrists. Then a kirtle of green brocade, embroidered with small pink pomegranates sparkling with rubies. Over all, a gown of creamy white velvet, shot through with diamonds and silver. Her hood was also white velvet, with a black veil hanging behind. She wore a long golden chain with a large ivory crucifix. Around her waist, she wore a golden girdle from which a cloud of enameled Tudor roses hung. We all knew the symbolism of her costume. The green and white was the Tudor livery, the pomegranates her own personal badge, and the Tudor roses spoke of the peace the Tudors had brought to England. The crucifix signified her piety and her determination to follow what she saw as God's will. We were all following her to the court. She wanted us all to be standing behind her. She was so brave, but she needed our support. Yes, I thought she was wrong, but I loved her so much, I couldn't deny her that. As we got to the court building, we could see the crowds gathered outside. This was a public court and some would be admitted. After all, it wasn't every day that a king and queen were tried in front of the Pope's representative for incest. Of course we knew that they wouldn't be punished. The issue that had to be decided was whether their marriage was legal and in accordance with God's teaching. The crowd cheered as she entered, but she didn't turn and wave. She was aware that the king was inside, and that he would see any such action on her part as inciting rebellion. We all squeezed into the hall. I saw Will standing in the public gallery and waved to him, but the crush was too great for us to stand next to each other. At the far end of the hall, on a raised dais, were two chairs, decorated in cloth of gold, where the two cardinals sat, Wolsey and Campeggio, behind a large oak table. Two large oak chairs stood on either side, facing each other, both covered by cloth of gold canopies. To the side, squeezed in tightly, were the English bishops, many talking quietly to each other. The noise hushed as the king and queen entered and took their places. Cardinal Wolsey signalled to the king to speak. He rose, magnificent in his red velvet and gold robe, 
his square hands beringed and sparkling. Thank you, your eminences. We are here in this court, not because I do not love this lady, he gestured towards Queen Catherine, who lowered her head and stared at the floor. Oh, no. If it were my choice, why, I would wed her again. I love her above all others. But it has become clear to me through a study of the Bible that the laws of God were against our marriage. A man may not lie with his brother's widow. It is there clearly in Leviticus. For all of these years, when we lived comfortably together, we were committing a grave sin, the sin of incest. I fear for our souls that when we come to judgment, we will be damned for all eternity. Queen Catherine tightened her hands into small fists and would not meet his eye. The only way we can be absolved is by bringing this sham of a marriage to an end. King Henry said sincerely, In that I care not only for myself, but for Catherine also. He had to appear as if he regretted what had happened. But the lies made me boil with anger. We all knew that he cared only to marry Anne Boleyn and thus to bed her. The king sat down, looking around him, smiling at those he recognised in the crowd. Then Cardinal Wolsey spoke. He said that he had been concerned about the Queen's assertion that the court was not impartial. Man to man, he appealed to King Henry to assure her that it was completely fair. The King stood up again and spoke directly to Queen Catherine. Madam, do not trouble yourself with this. I know that this court is impartial. In fact, my Lord Cardinal, you are so impartial that you are somewhat hard on me, he said with a little smirk. Wolsey inclined his head in thanks and Campeggio smiled. These men were united in patronising the woman who stood against them. Whatever you might think about Queen Catherine, this wasn't fair. She was fighting for her beliefs in a situation where anyone could see that the odds were stacked against her. Queen Catherine was called to speak. She paused for a moment, then rose from her chair, smoothing out her skirts. Without saying a word, she walked across to where the king was seated and knelt in front of him. There was a shocked gasp from the crowd. What was she going to do? Sir, I beseech you for all the love that hath been between us and for the love of God, let me have some justice. King Henry reached out a hand to her. Stand, Catherine, he whispered, but she remained kneeling. She went on to beg him for compassion, for mercy on her, a poor foreigner alone with no friends. Alas, Sir, wherein have I offended you? Or what occasion of displeasure have I deserved? She spoke with passion, as if to a lover. King Henry shifted uncomfortably on her seat. She went on, 
talking about how she had always conformed to his desires, had done everything to make him happy, and had borne him many children. Although it hath pleased God to call them out of this world, which hath been no default in me. I felt myself start to cry, as I could see her eyes well up with tears. Even King Henry looked a little emotional. He again tried to raise her up, but she shook him off. Now she was going to show what a fighter she was. She looked up at him and spoke directly to him. You know, my lord, that when I came to you in a marriage bed, I was a maid. You took my virginity. You are the best witness to that, and you know in your heart I tell the truth. I put it to your conscience. Can you solemnly swear that I was not a maid when you and I were married? King Henry cleared his throat, deeply embarrassed. He, who was so careful about his immortal soul, would not wish to lie about this matter. So why, I wondered, did he say nothing? Queen Catherine moved on to talk about her father, King Ferdinand, and Henry's father, King Henry VII. Why did they both agree to the marriage, unless they were sure it was legal? She was like a lawyer on that day, marshalling all her arguments, one after another, and each one made King Henry look even worse. At last, she seemed to be coming to an end. Finally, sir, as my lord and master, who can dispose of me as you will, I beg you to give me permission to write to the Holy Father in Rome, so that I can defend my name and my conscience to him. She raised her face and fixed her eyes on the king, a picture of wifely submission. He coughed <coughs> and wiped his face with a handkerchief. Why, yes, of course, madam, he spluttered. You are free to write to the Holy Father at any time. Now please do get up. She reached out to him to help her up which he reluctantly did. She then took a step back and curtsied deeply to him. Then she turned on her heel and walked down towards the crowd, holding out her arm to her receiver general, Griffin Richards. He took it and they walked together through the crowds towards the great doors. Catherine, Queen of England, come into the court. A court official called after her. Richards paused and said she'd been called back. A decent man, he wasn't quite sure what to do. Queen Catherine half turned and said in a loud, clear voice, On, on, it makes no matter, for it is no impartial court for me. Therefore, I will not tarry. Go on. After she left, there was a flurry of ladies trying to get into line to follow her. We were all looking at each other, and in many eyes I saw respect for her courage. She had shown those men that she was more than their equal. What was it that Will had said about the rule of women leading to chaos? I knew that if this woman had ever had the chance to be a ruling queen, 
then there would have been no chaos, only courage and determination. Queen Catherine went no more to the trial while it dragged on through the summer. She had written to the Pope begging him to bring the case back to Rome where he himself could decide it. Now it was a waiting game to see what would happen first. Either the court would make a decision or the Pope would bring the issue back to Rome. Will told me that the Pope wanted to delay the whole thing. He was in the middle of conflict between the Holy Roman Empire and the French and his decision depended on who he was most afraid of. He was hoping that Catherine might die and thus solve the problem. Catherine did think that she might be killed if she continued to resist, but she had no intention of dying in her bed. Every night she prayed that the missive would come soon from the Pope that would give her what she hoped was an impartial hearing. But the court in Blackfriars was due to come to a decision. Was this the end for her? Would she lose her case before she even had the chance to take it to Rome? Cardinal Campeggio thought of a way out of the impending crisis. In late July, Roman courts take a holiday because of harvest time. Therefore, as the court in Blackfriars was essentially a court of Rome, it would also take a holiday. Queen Catherine breathed a sigh of relief while Lady Anne fretted and the king stormed. A few weeks later, word came from Rome that Queen Catherine's appeal had been granted and the whole process would be moving there. Campeggio was glad to be going home, but Cardinal Wolsey was worried. King Henry was not pleased with the Church of Rome and the Duke of Suffolk was openly saying that England had never had any good from cardinals. After years of being the king's fixer, his administrator and friend, Cardinal Wolsey was now feeling the cold wind of his disapproval. Lady Anne Boleyn pressed King Henry to punish Wolsey for the failure of the legatine court and in the autumn he was accused of the crime of premunire, putting the laws of Rome above those of England. He pleaded guilty and had his house in London and his property taken from him. However, he was allowed to go and live quietly at his house in Esher. Queen Catherine started to show some sympathy for him. She had never liked him, but now he had fallen foul of Anne Boleyn. She found some fellow feeling with him. Poor man, she said, losing everything because he is a prince of the church. It is not right. He obeys the Pope, as we all must do. I shall send him some apples with a short note. The king did not visit her often and life was uneventful for a few months. She knew that he was spending most of his time with Lady Anne Boleyn. I'd spent a couple of afternoons with her in the summer, but I felt now that my place was with the Queen to show my loyalty and support. Yes, I did think it would be better if she went into a convent. It would save her from all this anguish, but I could not help but admire her bravery. But then the King announced that he would have dinner with the Queen at Greenwich Palace on St Andrew's Day. I wondered if her hopes would be raised by his message. But no, she had learnt her lesson. I do not hope any more, she said. 
I simply do what is right. She dressed magnificently as always, in blue sarsenet with pearls, but she did not smile. When he arrived in her apartments, she rose to welcome him, curtsied and escorted him to the table. You are welcome here, sir, on this St. Andrew's night, she said. Would that you had come sooner. Her voice was icy as she continued. Why is it, your majesty, that you no longer visit me? At bed or board, I am alone. Where are you, sir? King Henry finished his mouth of venison and wiped his fingers on his napkin. Affairs of state, Catherine. I have so many papers to read, so much to do now that Wolsey has um, left. You know, my dear, the lot of a king is not an easy one. And does the Lady Anne Boleyn help you with your state affairs? The Queen asked sarcastically. What role exactly does the concubine play? This was not something she would have said a few years ago, being so careful to please Henry, to make him feel he was the best man in the world. But now she was angry, and after weeks of being ignored, she was going to speak. King Henry stood up and pushed his large face into hers. Do not speak in that foul manner, madam. It does not do you favours. The Lady Anne does indeed discuss many matters with me. She is intelligent and can argue like a man, he sighed. Something which you, madam, seem unable to do. I am your wife, Henry, not your friend or your adviser or even your mistress. All I ask from you is that you treat me as your wife. I have not seen you for weeks. He was really angry now. I do not know what you have to complain about. You have your own household. You can do exactly as you wish. You can hunt, pray, sing, do everything you love with no trouble from me. You say I do not visit you in bed or at board. That is true. And you know the reason for it. It is because our marriage is not legitimate, madam, and I would be persisting in sin if I did so. He walked swiftly towards the door and paused before leaving. One day, madam, I hope you will find yourself capable of understanding a simple Bible verse. That is all I ask of you. Until then, you will not see me. He slammed the door as he went leaving Queen Catherine weeping. He was such a kind husband, a lovely man. He swore that he would love me forever. What has happened to that man? He talks about damnation, but it is his soul that will be damned if he pulls me aside. And what will happen to England, my dear England? My dear English friends who cheer me whenever I am allowed to show my face. I fear for the future, Cat. I fear for the future. Lady Anne's family continued to prosper. In early December, 
the king made her father Earl of Wiltshire and Ormond. Apparently at the celebration feast, Lady Anne sat in the queen's place and acted as if she already wore the crown. The queen heard all about it the next day and spent many hours in tears. But then, a few days later, the king was pleasant again. I don't know whether Lady Anne had hurt his feelings somehow, but he announced a few days later that he would be spending Christmas at Greenwich with the Queen and Princess Mary. What kind of game was he playing? Was he doing the same to Lady Anne, one day pleasant, the next day casting her out? I did not know. I hated him for what he was doing to both women. It was strange. People said that they were very different and they were. But in their loyalty, their intelligence and their piety, they had a lot in common. Princess Mary was a young woman now, still short in stature, but with an earnest, pretty face and a confidence about her that made us all love her. I did wonder if she remembered our days together as children, but she never said anything to me. She was pleasant but serious, and our encounters now were much more businesslike. Cat, fetch me my sewing. I left it behind. Oh, Cat, will you sing with us? We need another voice. That was all right with me. I did not love her. It was her mother that I loved. The palace was decorated with holly and ivy, and the air was thick with the scents of Christmas, cinnamon, cloves, sage and oranges. The royal family attended chapel on Christmas morning and sung the old carols that we all loved, Personant Hodi, the Boar's Head Carol and Gaudete. The king and queen feasted together with Princess Mary sitting between them. In the candlelight, they looked the happiest of families, both parents smiling as Princess Mary told them about her studies and her fondness for dancing. And yes, there was dancing that Christmas. It was full merry with the king dancing with his sister and the queen dancing with us ladies. Anne Boleyn was nowhere to be seen. Her apartments were empty. I wondered what she was doing. Had she gone back to Hever Castle? Maybe she was trying to force the king into action by ignoring him. Too busy with my own life to care much. Thomas Cromwell's wife, Elizabeth, had died earlier in the year. The sweating sickness again, and Will and I offered to help out at Christmas. Thomas Cromwell was morose and withdrawn, but his three children, Gregory, Anne and Grace, needed entertainment. We were able to put on masquerades with them and take them out to play in the heavy snow. Elizabeth Cromwell's sister, Joan, was there with her husband, as was Cromwell's nephew, Richard. They were a welcoming family and I loved the children. Mainly, though, the time was a special one for Will and me. Early one morning, we walked along by the icy river, muffled up in our woollen cloaks. We talked about the king's great matter from different perspectives. We talked about the Bible and how exciting it was to be able to read it. But most of all, we spoke about ourselves. As we spoke, our breath hung mistily in the air and merged into the fog. I love Queen Catherine and I want to protect her, but it's so much more exciting with Lady Anne. 
and she's promised me she will give me work in her chambers if I will leave the Queen. But I can't do that, Will. I really can't. He looked at me searchingly and then nodded. I know, Cap, you're loyal, but you may find that it is no longer possible to be loyal to Catherine. We do not know what will happen. She may not be with us for much longer. Fear rushed through my heart. Surely the Queen could not be in danger. Do you think she'll be killed by the King? I asked anxiously. He laughed. No, no, the king does not kill anyone. If it were to happen, it would be by another's hand. Whether that be an assassin or an executioner, the king would be careful to stay at arm's length. Cromwell do it, I wondered. Now Wolsey is not in power, it might be a way for him to progress. I like Thomas Cromwell and he had always been pleasant to me but I had heard that he was a man who had few scruples with dealing with people who got in his way. My master's a lawyer, not an assassin, Will answered, smiling. He knows how to handle himself, yes, and he was a soldier, but he will not kill in a dark alley nowadays. He shook his head. No, Cat, he will not kill the Queen, nor arrange for her to die. What he will do is find a way out for the king, a new way of looking at the law, differing opinions. He will get rid of the queen, do not doubt that cat, but he will do it legally, even if he has to change the law to do so. Will took my hand and stared into my face. And then, cat, what will you do? Be stuck with an old woman in a crumbling castle somewhere? There will be prayers aplenty, but no singing and dancing, no writing poetry or playing cards. You cannot do that. I'm not sure, I said. I like Lady Anne, but she can be sharp. I'm not sure if she would be kind. Lady Anne is a woman who believes in her destiny. She will be sharp to those who stand in her way. But you wouldn't do that. She loves your voice. She likes to sing with you. You would be a musician. She would be a good mistress to you. Will spoke the truth. I knew that. He would not advise me to work for the Lady Anne if he thought that any harm would come to me. I'm not sure, I mused. It is a difficult decision. Will sighed, frustrated. After a moment, he spoke up. Then don't do either. Marry me! He turned his head to one side and looked at me, his eyes teasing. I felt I loved him so much at that time. He was the person who had been close to me since I was a baby. But did I want him as a husband? I will be a lawyer soon. You will have a good life. You would be free to do as you wished, Cat. I would never see myself as your master. You could visit your queen, go and sing for Lady Anne. Do whatever you pleased. He made a convincing case for it, but I shook my head. No, Will, I do not wish to get married. Not ever. I shivered in the bitter cold breeze. He shrugged his shoulders. Well, at least, Cat, let me keep you warm. He enfolded me in his arms and I felt the warmth of him, the safe strength of his arms. 
He smelled of rosemary soap. I was entranced by him and raised my face to his. Slowly, gently, he put his lips on mine. I felt the soft scratchiness of his beard against my chin, sending shocks of excitement through me. This was not the will I had remembered, but a different will. He was a man, and for the first time I felt that I was a woman. My nipples hardened under my shift as I felt his muscled chest against them. I returned his kiss ardently, pressing my body against his. I clung to him, feeling excitement and desire, but also fear. But was it will I was afraid of? Or was it life without Queen Catherine? I didn't know. I pulled away from him regretfully. Will, I'm not sure, I said. I cannot leave the Queen now, and who knows what will happen in the future. Well, well, Cat, I can wait for you, and I will. You will not get rid of me, you know that. I laughed. Yes, you're like a bad penny, you will always turn up. I looked at him earnestly. Do that, and I'm glad of it, I said softly. His eyes lit up, and he let out a slow whistle. <whistles> so be it, Mistress Cat. Now we have to devise some New Year's revels for the children. Do you have any ideas? Master Cromwell went into the court on New Year's Day, mainly to show his face. With Wolsey's fall, it was important that he continued to remind the king of his presence and his services. It was a day for giving gifts, and the courtiers would all vie with each other as to whose was most appreciated by the king. When Cromwell returned, he sat by the fire, telling us and the others about the day. He had given the king a bolt of red velvet, shot through with gold threads. It would be enough for his tailor to make him a sizable coat. In return, the king gave him a silver goblet. From which to drink your Italian wines, Cromwell, he jested. I know you like that green wine from the north. He didn't mention Cromwell's wife, and nor did any of the courtiers. Cromwell was useful. He did the king's bidding. He was not unequal, and the events of his family were of no interest to them. I do not care. Those people are the powerful ones, the players. Why should they care for me? I must just be of service to them, that is all. I do not care for them either. It is the people here, my people, that I care for. We are the ordinary people that marry for love and work to feed our families. We may work for the grandees, but our hearts are free. He looked sad as he said this, and I knew he was remembering his wife. Elizabeth had died very quickly, just like the woman I remembered as my mother. She had risen in the morning, well and merry, but by the evening she was dead, and her funeral procession was winding its way towards the graveyard. The Queen asked for you, Cat, Cromwell said. She asked when you would be back at court, as she misses you. I told her that you had been helping with the children, and she smiled and told me that you were a good girl. I think, though, that you will need to return tomorrow. My heart sank. 
I'd been hoping for more time with Will, but I knew that the Queen needed me and Cromwell probably wanted Will to return to work. It could not be helped. How is the King with the Queen? I asked Cromwell. He looked at me, consideringly. There is no reconciliation there, Mistress Cat. I know that you love the Queen. She's a brave little woman, I will give you that. But the King is determined to marry Lady Anne. I nodded miserably. The Queen will be happier without him, Cromwell said bracingly. He treats her with this exaggerated courtesy, but he doesn't listen to what she says. All the time he is fidgeting, looking for messengers at the gate. He is desperate to hear from Lady Anne. So she was not there, I asked. She has not shown her face all Christmas. He is desperate to hear from her. I heard that he had sent her a very expensive New Year present. So far, not a word out of her. He laughed ironically. She is made of steel, that one. Strange, isn't it, that the greatest king in Christendom is bested by two women? I could never say this at court, but they are the only people who are not afraid of him and see him for what he is. It is a delight to see. He smiled, and for a moment I saw that he had forgotten his grief. He loved the intrigue, the power play of the court, and it had kept him going through this dark time. God takes those who he most loves. Later that year, Will told me that Cromwell's daughters, Grace and Anne, had also died from the sweating sickness. I remembered how much they meant to him and grieved for him in his terrible loss. The Queen, God bless her, sent him a handwritten note of sympathy. Yes, he was an enemy, but she understood what it was like to lose children, and her feelings for him were heartfelt. He had responded with a brief visit to her, his eyes wet with tears. I saw your daughters once, the Queen remarked gently. You brought them into the court one day to see the Christmas revels two years ago. They were beautiful girls with such lovely manners. Cromwell nodded mutely, his hands clutching his cap. It is hard, is it not, when God claims them for himself, she mused. I have the comfort of knowing, as I am sure you know, that I will see my babies again when I join them in the arms of God. I pray that you will also have that reward. It is my fervent hope, Your Majesty. Cromwell said, giving her the title that he was determined to take from her. She nodded and sighed deeply. Thank you for your visit, Master Cromwell. I may not see you again, in which case I wish you well and God's speed. And she dismissed him with a regretful but determined wave of her hand. <laughs>